Mike and Wendy, didn't y'all meet through campus outreach? Uh, okay, you were involved in campus outreach, right? You, and what, what years was it you were involved in campus outreach? All right, very good. Let me ask this. How many of you have been supporters, students in, or staff of campus outreach at one point in your life? Uh, CO has a significant uh, role in the life of our church. It has always played an enormous role in the life of our church. It was a relationship and a partnership ministry with us in the city. And we, we lock arms with them hand in hand, arm in arm, uh, to take the gospel forward. So thank you, Hamilton, for your time this morning. Colossians 1 is where we're going to be. Also want to, uh, as we've sent your attention a couple times uh, this morning to the website, uh, as community groups have begun, you might re- realize or see in your uh, bulletin a outline. There we go. There's some PowerPoint slides. Uh, community groups um, in which there's an outline. You can go to our website, to our sermon library there, where you can hear the uh, MP3 of our sermons. You can download it. We also have a podcast, uh, KCP Church. Uh, .org is our website. You can find our website and the sermons there. And also you might notice there there's notes, the sermon notes connected to that, that site and the discussion guide that we use for our community groups. All of our community groups use this discussion guide to lead them through uh, their time together around God's word. And so we, pr- we ask that you would use that, uh, fill that out before you go uh, in your community group that way. Colossians 1, let's get to God's word this morning. So we began last week this series, which will take up the majority of this or all of this semester and then a little bit into January as well. Did an overview last week and now we come to verse 1 and verse 2. Hear God's word. An apostle of Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. Will you pray with me and for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, feel a great need for you to show up. I confess, Lord, that this feels like dry bones. And so great that your spirit would come and hover as you did in Ezekiel, that you would make dry bones, you'd give them life and flesh, that your spirit would go out with your word this morning. And I pray for hearts this morning that are dry like dry bones as well, that your spirit would go out and refresh and renew and make alive. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We spent last week looking at an overview of the letter and message of Colossians in which we began very quickly kind of doing almost like a commentary beginning to this book, a 30,000-foot view of what is going on here. We looked at the author and the audience very briefly. We looked at the occasion of the book, which, by the way, the occasion of the book, in case you missed it, is that there are false teachers to infiltrate the church in Colossae and are bringing a couple, some aberrant views to Christianity. And Paul is addressing those views and addressing them head-on and seeking to make sure the church in Colossae stays centered on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the message or the heart of Colossians. And we saw at the heart of it is the supremacy or the preeminence that he is first and foremost of all things and that it's in that we are hidden All of our life is hidden in Christ Jesus. That means it encompasses all of our life. All things does the supremacy of Christ have to do with. 
We don't need anything else to be added to Jesus because when you have him, you have the supreme and sufficient Lord. And so we come this morning and we begin to dive into the details of this book. And we begin where you ought to begin with a book, which is at the very beginning. Verses 1 and verses 2. And what we see here is we see that Paul is indicating and identifying both who it is that has written the letter himself and also those who are the recipients of the letter. Now, when you address a letter to your wife, this is what you do, right? You begin by identifying. You say something along the lines of, Dear sweet snookums, or dear boo, or dear ball and chain. Whichever it is, that is the way you write. Or, well, by the way, men, you should write letters. And going and buying a card and putting her name on the top and your name on the bottom is not a letter. All right, so write letters. But Paul identifies who he is, who it is that is receiving this, but he also identifies himself. Now, this is a letter that is typical for that time and age in which people would not simply begin with dear so-and-so, but they would also communicate who it is that is writing. And it wasn't, the memo on the top was not to colon and from colon. It was longhand. It was descriptive, and this is what we see with Paul. That in his identifying who the audience is and identifying who the author is, he actually gives us in these few short verses, verses 1 and verses 2, a primer on Christian identity through the way he addresses who he is and the way he addresses the church at Colossae. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, a primer of the Christian identity, what it is that identifies us as Christians, And we begin with verse 1 where Paul says this, that I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is an identifying term, right? An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now in this little prepositional phrase, by the will of God, Paul shares with us the basis and the authority of the identity that we have in this world. What we see here is inter- there's two things going on when Paul says this by the will of God. He is saying something that is utterly, that almost appears arrogant in its confidence, but also completely self-abasing and humble at the same time. Let's dive in going into these phrases. The first thing that we see in this phrase, by the will of God, is that Paul is revealing to us the authoritative voice for our identity. The authoritative voice for our identity. Why is it that Paul feels the need to say that he is an apostle, which is a messenger of God's word to God's people? And why is he an apostle by the will of God? He is saying that in order to communicate right out of the gate that he comes not with a man-made message, but a message that comes to this church by the will of God and with the authority of God. This is a bold and very confident statement that Paul is making. He is asserting that he has divine authority by what, behind what he is saying to this church. Now, this is important for him to say this. If you understand the context and the occasion of this book or this letter, Colossians, who has tried to infiltrate this church? It is false teachers. Those who are coming in and, and, and preaching an aberrant gospel, things that are not true to what Paul has preached and what Epaphras, the church planter in Colossians, Colossae, has preached. And so Paul is coming in and he is laying down the groundwork saying that you listen to me, not listen to them. This is kind of like you've ever had this experience with your children when you go to somebody else's house and your five-year-old else's kids and and the, the other somebody else's kids give your child a piece of candy and they say oh of course you can eat it you can eat this piece of candy 
and you find your child finger deep into a bowl of candy, you go, uh, who told you that you could get into the candy bowl? Oh, well, so-and-so, this other five-year-old told me I could get into the candy bowl. And your response as a parent is to say, oh, really? That's your authority. No, 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 listen up. I am the parent here. I get to tell you if you can dip your hands into the candy bowl. That is what Paul is coming and communicating to the church at Colossae. He's saying, listen, there are false teachers out there, and you should not listen to them. But I come with the truth of God because I have the authority of God behind me, and I speak as his messenger. So what does this have to do with us? Well, just as, if, as the message to the Colossians right out of the gate here is, listen to me, what Paul is saying to us is you must listen to him as well. That these words that Paul is giving us in the rest of this book are not some simply some man-made idea that he has taken out of the sky that, he, that, that helps him look better. But these are the words of God given to us. Paul is coming and saying, I am an authority, and I speak with authority because these are the words of God to you. And the re- what this has to do with your identity is what voice is it that you listen to that declares and communicates to you who you are as a Christian? There are many false teachers out there. There are many false teachers in the church and outside the church, people who would like to say what you should believe and what you should be and what you should do as a Christian. And the place in which is the authoritative voice in your life that tells you who you are as a Christian is not out there. It is right here in God's words. That's what Paul is saying. And the place where our lives, our, our lives as Christians go haywire is whenever we begin to listen to the voices that are false, that are contrary to the identity that is given to us in God's words. That we listen to the voice of sometimes our parents, sometimes to teachers, sometimes to obviously negative voices. Sometimes it comes within the church, such as a, a, a theology that is, rank, that is driving people crazy all over the world. People who love God's word is a, a theology called health and wealth gospel, which is the belief that if you would just obey God, he would make you healthy, wealthy, rich in this life right now. And that your identity is to be rich right now. That's how you're supposed to be living right now, driving a, a Bentley all around town for Jesus. This is an aberrant theology. And it'll... It'll take the focus off of what is the central identity in your life. So the question is, first and foremost, right out of the gate, as Paul's addressing this issue, is who are you listening to to tell you who you are? Who is the dominating voice in your life? Is it God's word? Or is it somebody else's word? That's the first. Even as Paul is saying something here that is incredibly bold, and saying that I am the messenger of God to speak authoritatively into your life, He's also saying something here that points to how humble he is. That he is not relying upon his own ingenious ideas in order to speak. The authority comes only by the decision of God. And here we see the basis of our identity. So we've seen the authoritative voice, but also now we see the basis. Paul is saying that his identity and his calling as an apostle is not by his own idea. It is by the will of God. Paul did not wake up one day and determine that he was an apostle. God came to him, he saved him, and he declared that you are my man to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It is by the will of God that Paul is an apostle, that he is a Christian, that he has chosen to follow hard after God, not because he has decided to do so, not because he is so gifted and so great, but simply because this is what God has called him to do. 
at how God has shaped him. And it's the authority that God has given him. 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 helped lead to this. Again, Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says this, For I am the least of the apostles. So he doesn't become an apostle because he's so great. I am, in fact, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the will of God. You see, being an apostle by the will of God is both a statement claiming incredible authority in this world. But it's also a statement saying that if it were not for him and declaring that this is who I am and making me in this way, that I would be nothing. A pastor named Sam Storms talks about this. It's a great quote. He says this, In sum, Paul didn't aspire to ask, to aspire to or ask or apply for the job. After all, until captured by the grace of God on the road to Damascus, he was evidently content with and proud of his status as a revered Pharisee. His ministry as an apostle did not come by human nomination. It was, in fact, by divine initiation, divine preparation, and divine authentication, which is to say it was entirely by the will of God. Paul is an apostle because God drew him there and made him so. Now, just as Paul's identity and his calling as a Christian and as apostle is by the will of God, this is true for you and I as well. That we are Christians, that we follow hard after God, that we love him, and then every aspect of your life, every calling in your life is ultimately by the will of God. It was by the will of God that you were created. The will of God that he pursued you to the ends of the earth. It was by the will of God that he sent his spirit inside of you when you were an object of wrath, when you were running from him as fast as you possibly could. He sent his spirit inside of you to send a quickening ray in much the same way that Paul on the Damascus Road had a quickening light that was both spiritual and physical, radically changed his life. The spirit of God entered your life and sent a quickening ray that said, I will make you alive, you who are once dead. It was by the will of God. It was not by your own will. It was ultimately by him. Now, it brought out some reactions in you. It may have looked like walking an aisle or saying a prayer or beginning to obey or saying, I love Jesus, but it began with his will. Now, that brings us to some serious questions here, right? There's a can of worms that I might be opening here that is rather slimy and for some of us makes us go, ugh, I don't like this part. For there are questions like this. Is it God's will that I'm suffering right now? Is it God's will that... Children die in infancy. Is it God's will that I, in fact, have usurped him and sinned? I want to be careful here. I fear opening a can of worms that I cannot even begin to screw back on in the few short minutes I get to address this. But let me say a few things briefly and most definitely reductionistically. If you can, I can make up a word. There's lots more to be said here. But what is meant by the will of God in the scriptures and what we see here in this passage is it brings it up. We must ask that question. And what we see if we try to understand all the different passages in the scriptures, the different senses in which it talks about God's will, is there are two senses of God's will that comes to the forefront. The first is this, is the will of God in the sense of God's will of decree or what's also known as God's sovereign will. In this way, we are talking about everything and anything, good or bad, evil or redemptive that comes to pass. In this sense, the will of God is anything and everything that happens. All things. 
Let me give you a couple of passages here just to, to kind of back this up. Daniel 4, 34 and 35 says this, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. It's interesting. A pagan is actually claiming this. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done, God? Ephesians 1, 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that word works is not a passive word. That is an active word. This is not a God who is sitting with his hands full, arms folded in heaven going, that's, man, that's a shame. This is a God who is actively working, and what does it say? In a few things? and just the good things? All things. I think that covers the basis pretty clearly, right? All things. Jesus spoke of the will of God in Gethsemane. We see another description of this. When he was praying to God the Father in Matthew 26, 39, it says this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What does the will of God refer to in this verse? The death of the Son of God. That is not a good thing. And yet it was the will of God to bring it about. You see, we, we, this all, even the commentary of Acts, and the, it is the apostles are talking about Christ's death. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, they point back to this. And it says, There truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was by the will of God that Jesus died. This was his plan. This was his decree. There was no changing it. Even the prayers of his son were not changing it. So don't miss this crucial point here. It involved the sins of men. All things, right? Herod, the Jewish leaders, those who nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross... God's plan, his will, his decree, sovereign will in this world as king over all things has said, that's part of my plan. There's another sense, though, in which we see in the scriptures. We have to hold these things. They, the scriptures talk about it in two senses. And the other sense is this. The will of God, in another sense, is his will of commands. Or what's also known in other places as his prescriptive will what he has prescribed that he desires to see happen. A couple of verses to back this up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that what? You abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now let me ask you this. Do you always control your body with holiness and purity? And yet it says there that it's the will of God that you would do so. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What God tells us to do, we must obey. But where we don't obey, we are not doing his will in this sense. We are not doing what he has prescribed for us to do. So I conclude from these other passages, from these multiple passages that appear to talk about God's will in, in multiple different ways, is that there are two ways in the scriptures of talking about God's will. 
There are two senses in which God communicates about how he thinks and desires in this world. God's decretive and sovereign will and his moral will. His prescribed will. His prescribed will can be broken and is broken every moment of every day in this world. But his decretive will, his sovereign will, is never broken. And there is not a single moment that you could live outside of that will. You cannot frustrate it. You cannot end it. There is no stopping it. It will come to pass. And he is working all things to bring about that will. To bring about that desired end. Getting back to the point of our identity. Getting back to the point, Paul appears to be talking here when he says that I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is talking here about God's sovereign will that can never be broken. And it is a will, of, will that Paul, as a Christian, something that Paul could frustrate. It was something that God did. And here's the message for us. is at the very basis, at the foundation of your identity as a Christian, it's because God did something in you. No one, no one, no one can therefore take you out of his hands. Not only are you a Christian by the will of God, but this also means that everything in your life as it currently stands and the understanding of God's decretive sovereign will is within his will. Even your struggles with sin today is a part of his redemptive plan and his redemptive will. You may not have had a Damascus experience calling you to be an apostle like Paul did, but you are called, and it's by the will of God that you're a mother. It is by the will of God that you're a father, that you're an employer or an employee, that you're a president of a university, that you're a poor person, that you're a wealthy person. Every single aspect of your life is under the will of God, and there's not one crumb of your life and one hair that is on the comb that you used to brush your hair this morning that God did not ordain that it would go there. This should, I don't have much time for application this morning. That's why you have community groups. But this should give you incredible confidence as Christians. And incredible comfort. Confidence because you know there can be nothing that can snatch you out of the hand of God. Because it's by his strength. When we talk about will, we talk about strong-willed children, right? The sense of not being broken. Well, there is nothing about God's will that can be broken in the sense of his sovereignty. And if it's his sovereign will that you should be saved, there is nothing that can stop that. Hell can rage and the earth can spit and flame, but it cannot stop this will of God for you. And it also should be an incredible comfort because it means that whatever you're enduring right now, whether it's be a, be a cranky boss or poverty or sickness, whatever it may be, God is using it for that end goal and that he is in it. It is not devoid of his presence. It is inflamed with his presence. So that's what we glean from Paul. And it's just simply his identification of himself as apostle by the will of God. But he also then identifies his audience, right? And he says much there about the gospel. And he used four identifying words in verse 2. Four phrases or words. They're this. Saints, faithful brothers, and then two phrases. In Christ and at Colossae. I'm going to merely mention each of these rather briefly and kind of expound upon them and then let you do some of the application in your community groups this week. But the current reality of our identity in Christ Jesus is, is fourfold there. I'm going to state it in three ways. The first is you are saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. What, do mean, what does it mean to be a saint in Christ Jesus? 
Now, often we think about saints, we think about uh, veneered, veneered, that's not the right word, venerated, yes, right? Venerated individuals in the history of the church. We think of Roman Catholicism, where they, they lift certain people up who say that this person is an incredible, awesome Christian. But primarily, that is not what, the, what the, the New Testament and the Bible talks about when it refers to saints. Primarily, what saints refers to is our position in this world, and primarily our position before God, that he has separated us before God's eyes and made us holy in his eyes. It is not that we are perfectly holy now, that when, God, when Paul calls us saints and calls the Christians in Colossae saints, that they live absolute perfect lives in every single way, shape, and form. They are cut above other Christians. No, he is talking about who they are positionally in Christ Jesus. In fact, every Christian is a saint. They are holy. It rests not on our righteousness, not on our sacrifice, but on Christ Jesus and his holiness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Wisdom from God. So we get wisdom from Christ. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. You are looked upon as perfect and holy in God's sight because you're covered by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. John Bunyan, you know him? Wrote this book, just a little thing. Progress. Bunyan talks about positional holiness. Bear with me as I read this. A little old English here for your mutual, for your benefits. But one day, as I was passing in the two with some dashes on my conscience, he's struggling with his conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And me thought, with all, with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there I say is my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants of any righteousness. For that righteousness was always before him. In other words, he's saying, even in my worst moments, Christ, God sees me as righteous in his sight. He goes on and says this, I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous or better, nor yet my bad frame that made me my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, and he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations had fled away. So that from that time on, those dreadful scriptures of God that left me troubling, now I went on also home rejoicing for the grace of God and the love of God. Saints are holy because, as I said last week, a central part of the message is we are hidden in Christ Jesus. And therefore, he no longer sees your sin positionally. He only sees the righteousness of Christ upon you. That is one aspect of your identity. And it's current right now. You have to understand that because when you sin, when you existentially are not holy before the Lord. When you're not living rightfully. It is not clean yourself up, then come into God's presence. But you boldly come before the throne of God, confessing your sin and claiming the righteousness of Christ because there is one who stands before you. There is one who is your righteousness. You always have access to God the Father. You are always seen as holy. 
It's the first identification. The second, to be very, very brief on this one, is we are seen as faithful brothers in Christ Jesus. Paul does not go into much description here. But simply this, let me connect it to the word saint real quickly. Paul, in the entire New Testament, this word saint, only one time do we use it in the singular. One time. It's always saints. And the only time that it is used in the singular, which is in Philippians 4.21, it says every saint. So even there, it is still describing all saints. Saints are not simply individuals. It is Christ Jesus' perfect, invisible church. It is the faithful brothers of Christ Jesus that have gathered together. That means there are no solitary saints. There are no lone rangers. And it's part of your identity. Do you see this? It is not simply an activity that you do which is coming to church. You are the church. It is not simply that you call brothers, people brothers and sisters when you see people in church. You actually are brothers and sisters. That's part of your identity in this world. And in Christ Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. We are bound together by blood, but a blood that's thicker than the one that is in right now. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that has bound us together. Faithful brothers. Third identification. We are saints and faithful brothers in Christ. But then there's another prepositional phrase. At Colossae. Colossae, if you understand, for the people living there was not simply their residence, but it was an aspect and a part of their identity. Now, we don't tend to think of our cities so much as being a part of our identity. We more maybe connect to our, our nation. But you have to remember, in that day and age, for the most part, cities were city-states often, although everything was under Rome at that time pretty much. But city-states were of incredible importance. And in a world where you don't travel much, in a world where you have to much more than today have to rely upon the other people within the city itself, in a place where the cities were not near as large and you probably ended up seeing the same people every single day of your life for the whole of your life, your city meant everything. The walls of that city literally would keep you alive against invading armies. It meant everything. This is part an aspect of who they were. This is why Saul was known as Saul from Tarsus. It's there in his name. They would identify themselves based from. So we see this as an identity, but what we see in Paul's mind here is that just as these Christians literally live in a specific region, a specific place, they also literally live in Christ Jesus. The terrain, the climate, the values, and the history in which these people grow up and live helps define who they are, but in the same way, being in Christ Jesus means that all your values, all of history, all things in your life are evaluated through this reality that you're connected to Christ. God's spirit, God's values, God's character, God's purposes, they shape now your identity. Just as much as your family and your city, they are both going on. You live in two kingdoms. You live in two locations of sorts. You are both in Christ and you're at Carrollton. You're in Christ and you're at Colossae. Simultaneous two locations two kingdoms, and two identities going on. Now, the defining and controlling kingdom and the defining and controlling identity is that you're in Christ. But that does not mean that we don't live in another kingdom. We still live in the kingdom of this world. And we have an identity here in this world. Now, there's two errors or two ditches to fall into in this understanding of how a Christian living in Christ is also part of the kingdoms of this world's. 
Ditch one is this, is that we make too much of our earthly identifications. In other words, our earthly identification is more central or more commanding to our lives than our identity in Christ Jesus. Your physical or geographical location may change, but your spiritual condition will never change in Christ. You may work and play. You may go to different places, live in different cities. You may be single, but someday be married. But you are always and unchangeably in Christ Jesus. And so first and foremost, our identity and the kingdom for which we live is Christ's identity. John 17, Jesus talks about this, that we must be in the world but not of the world's. That there are those who live in such a way that the United States of America and that Carrollton and that the things of this world value more to them and the identities that this world offers than the identity of Jesus Christ. But wherever we are, ultimately, for the Christian, Christ has got to be more central. So the one ditch that we jump off is to make this world, the kingdoms of this world, too much a part of our identity. Were you too much of a citizen of the United States? That's too central. That's more central than Christ. Right? That your family, traditional society's family, this is a temptation for many of us. That family is more important. It's a greater identification than Christ Jesus. Parents, don't communicate that to your children. In other words, you've got to bring them to church. Family life is absolutely subservient, subservient to this family life. It is. This is part of the greater kingdom. So you can, ditch, you can fall on one ditch. The other ditch is this. The other ditch is to not care at all about your earthly citizenship or care at all about your identity. Remember in, I forget if it's in the books, and I won't go to the books since many of you have not read all the Lord of the Rings. Many, much more of you have seen the movies. And you might remember when one of the hobbits is trying to go convince the Ents. The Ents were these tree people with incredible great power, but they had essentially given up on the world. It was too dark. This is what Christian fundamentalists are, by the way. And I'm not kidding. This is literally what the term, after the, the monkey scopes trial, where we lost the, the, the issue of evolution in the schools, Christians pieced out. We pieced out. We did. And we created this group of Christians called fundamentalists, and we gave up. Now, there were some who hung around and kept fighting the culture wars, but for the most part, the power of Christianity bailed. We said, forget it. We're going to go live in our corners. We're going to do our things. We're going to remove ourselves. We're going to go to work and make just enough money so that we can have our life, our fundamental life over here and separate ourselves. This is what the Ents were doing in Lord of the Rings. That we have removed ourselves so that we don't actually care about the world in which we live. We're living simply for that, that land to come. What does he say? The Hobbit says this, but you live in this world. You're part of this world. And Paul says you are both in Christ and you are still a part of Carrollton and Bremen and Rootville and Villarica. You're part of this world and therefore you have to care about this world. And this is the way this works. Is that our Christness, our in Christness, does not mean that we utterly disengage from our earthly citizenship. Actually what it does is it does just the opposite. It actually empowers and gives us reasons to engage in our earthly citizenship. That we don't simply have to run from this world, but we have Christ Jesus, our King, who walks before us and goes before us and has power over all principalities and authorities. And so, therefore, we enter into our city and we say we love this place and we claim it for the name of Jesus. That's a living here. 
The prophet Jeremiah talks about this to Israel when they're living in captivity in Babylon. And he calls them, and they were beginning to separate themselves, and they were creating their own kind of Jewish ghettos, and they were trying to have nothing to do with Babylon. But he calls them on and says, no, 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 no. You live for the good of that city. Because you are my redeemed people. And you are called now to live in this place. Therefore, therefore it, it matters what happens in Carrollton. And we ought to be involved. Transforming what is going on here because we care. Living out our sainthood. Living out our in Christness all over this place. Therefore, while race is not your ultimate identity, it still matters. And therefore, what happens to your race matters. Your family is not your ultimate identity, but you live for the good of your family. This country is not our ultimate identity, but we should love this country. We should store the gifts that we've been given in this place for it. We have to live in these two kingdoms. One dictates how we live in the other, but we live in both simultaneously until the kingdom of God has fully and finally come in this world. The third thing and the final thing we close with this morning is I want you to just look very briefly at the blessings that are ours in our reality, in our identity. The blessings of our identity. How does Paul end? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul starts grace and peace. It's a benedictory greeting upon the Colossians. Now, if you're like me, um, me and, and it's just habit. In part because this kind of language has just entered our Christian world and we just kind of dumb it down. I remember my youth group, but maybe I've talked about this before. <laughs> At my youth group, there was almost, as we were learning about grace, everyone would have, begin to have their own kind of way of saying grace in kind of this wispy sort of way. Grace. And no one actually knew what it, you stopped knowing what it meant because it just became part of the wallpaper. And so we think that Paul is simply just giving flowery wallpaper at the beginning of this letter. But it's not. Paul's not a man who mints his words. Paper is not that common then. You didn't waste paper. Grace and peace, it means much. Paul is telling us the blessings of our identity as Christians, and he's extending those blessings to us in his greeting. Why does he bid grace and peace to those of us? You're, he's writing to Christians, right? Here's a question. Why is, he, why is he bidding grace and peace to those who already have grace and peace, supposedly, right? Because he doesn't simply want you to know about grace and peace. He wants us as Christians to constantly be growing into a greater and greater and greater experience of the grace and peace that we have in Christ Jesus. This is about experience. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. May you know the grace that is yours. What does grace mean? Very briefly. We've covered so many things this morning. I'm sorry it's so crunchy. It's how Paul talks. It's his problem. Well, now it's my problem. He says grace to you. Grace. Grace refers to God's favor towards you. You may have heard the acronym grace using all the letters. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Divine grace is more than simply God's attitude or disposition towards you. It's the experience of him in your life. And this is what Paul wants for you. That you would know more and more every day. It's why he's writing the letter so that they would understand the grace of God and experience the grace of God more in their life. And then he says grace, but then he says peace to you. Grace, peace like grace, comes from our God our Father. It's a confident repose in the truth of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's a saying in a sense to say, God's got it. It's his will. 
And I've seen and it's been communicated to me in the gospel of Jesus Christ that all things work to my good because of Christ Jesus. And I've been given all acceptance through Christ Jesus. And that means it doesn't matter what else comes into my life. I can be at peace with it. Peace is often described in terms of what it does for us in the midst of pain and suffering. And that's, that's right. A tornado hits your house and sweeps away all your possessions. What do you say? My life is hidden with God in Christ. A terrorist separates your head from your body. You won't be saying anything in, on earth at that point, but you'll be saying this, but nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you'll know it definitively then. A disease may ravage your body, but you say God works all things together for my goods. Enemies may persecute me, but I will rejoice because I have a better possession in the kingdom to come. It's peace, grace and peace to you. So in all situations, you know God's got it. He's given me all good things. And finally, see that it's from who? Who is the grace and peace from? Paul's stating it, but who is he wanting us to receive it from? From God our Father. The extension of grace and the experience of peace comes from God the Father. We receive sonship. Remember it said we're brothers. That means there's a father somewhere. And he is our father. The image of coming into your father's room and he extends to you his, his love to you. You ever been in trouble with your father? Remember as a little kid, you're just terrified? And if you had a good father, that moment, and a good father will know, this kid knows, he feels like he's about to get chewed out. I mean, this kid is trembling for his life. But you know in that moment, it's the most important at that moment to say, I love you and I care for you and I embrace you. Come here and give daddy a hug. Stephen Curtis Chapman talks about this. You know, when his son, the 17-year-old son, they drove into their, their driveway one day, and they had three little adopted girls from China, and he hits one of them and kills her. He said this as he's driving out of, the, out of the, the driveway, driving off to the hospital with this little girl. He said this. He yelled out of the window. He rolled down his, his window, and he said, with as much strength that he could muster, Will Franklin, I love you. Because he knew that that day, if he didn't say that right then, he would lose two children. Do you understand that the grace that is given to you is from a father who says, I love you, you are my son, you are my saint. And Jesus, our brother, says, you're my brother. This is incredible blessings that is ours. To experience the hug and embrace of the father is to experience that all will be okay and that one day in his final coming, he'll call you to himself and you'll experience peace as you were always meant to experience it. Let's close there. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the story of his life that is such a display of the gospel truth that even when we are running away from you, in fact, we are calling ourselves enemies, that, Lord, you intervene with a shining light and precious and sovereign will you intervene and you call us your own. And you call us saints, and you call us sons, and you call us daughters. Lord, I don't know where our theology lands this morning, but I pray that, that the truths that Paul gives us here would drive home a true sense of peace and rest in all that Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. We ask in the name of our son, or your son, and our brother, Christ Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.